Benjamin Franklin uh, proposed the timber rattlesnake to be the national uh, animal. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Greetings! Welcome back to the Raw Safari Podcast. I hope this episode finds you doing well, and frankly, I hope it finds me doing well too, as it still hasn't been released as I'm recording this. So, to future John and everyone else out there, I hope you're having a great day. I also hope you're checking out at Raw Safari on Instagram and all the social media platforms, rawsafari.com to see pics and listen to episodes, rawsafari.redbubble.com for merch, and patreon.com slash rawsafari to support the pod. Despite my silly introduction, today's episode is a really important one. This podcast often touches on the conservation efforts of zoos, but today we are going all in on that. I'm bringing you an interview with Lou Parati, the Director of Conservation Programs at Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence, Rhode Island. We talk about three of the current conservation projects he is overseeing through the zoo, and I found myself being blown away by the amazing work being done and the depth of knowledge Lou brought to the table. If there is an Indiana Jones of conservation, it's Lou Parati. Seriously, this man has traveled all around the world in the service of animals, many of which aren't the adorable ones that everyone is looking to save. Along with the three main projects we discuss, we also talk about the ramifications of the coronavirus pandemic on conservation efforts, and we talk about Lou's work on the AZA-SSP coordination for both the American burying beetles and wood turtles, which, if you've listened to the Vinterview episode, you'll know is one of my favorite species. Oh, and the Rasafari poop story this episode? It's not so much a story as a dissertation. I was actually going to release this episode a few weeks from now, but decided to move it up because of some recent news pertaining to one of the conservation efforts we discuss at great length in this podcast. I'll save that information until the end of the episode, though, so you can get a better feel for the project first. So, without further ado, here's my interview with someone who has quickly become one of my conservation heroes, Lou Parati. <laughs> All right, so, Lou, tell me uh, who you are, where we are, and what you do. <laughs> sure. Uh, we're at the Roger Williams Park Zoo here in Providence, Rhode Island, um, and my role here is the uh, Director of Conservation Programs for the zoo. That's awesome. And one thing that we focus on a lot in this podcast is that zoos are cool and zoos are a great place to go and all of that, but what really sets apart most zoos, and especially AZA zoos, is the focus on conservation. So I'm really excited to talk to you about that. Um, tell me about what kind of conservation programs you guys do here. Um, we're all over the board. Um, you know, we certainly try to have a conservation tie to every, uh, you know, species or biome that we represent here at the zoo. Um, so it's my job to go out there and kind of tie a conservation project um, to our exhibits Um and make sure that we're utilizing our resources, whether that be money, staff, uh, space, uh, to be sure that we're contributing to the conservation of wildlife and the wild places that they live in uh, in a pretty significant way. 
That's awesome. That's a, that's obviously a really great uh, goal to have. It is. Um, and I know that you guys have some projects here um, that are not focused on maybe the the cute and cuddly animals that so many uh, zoos tend to focus on. And, you know, we, we all know about the, the great success of the giant panda um, and all that stuff. But tell me why it's important to focus on saving uh, less publicly friendly species. Yes, yes. I, I like to use the term less charismatic species. Yes, that's right? perfect. And, and, and I like to pride uh, our portfolio on the fact that we've done that and do that very, very well. Um, you know, we've, of course, you know, we have projects that, um, you know, deal with elephant conservation, snow leopards. You know, we, we support the people that are on the ground doing the work out there. I mean, I can't be everywhere in the world doing this. So we're making sure that we are uh, doing our part for the charismatic species as well. But But our portfolio really lies in... You know, those truly those little things that make the ecosystem run, you know, from carrion beetles to venomous snakes to even prey species like the New England cottontail rabbit. And a lot of these programs we've written the books on. And uh, as far as the husbandry and, you know, and me having a background in, in reptile and invertebrate husbandry, starting as a keeper many years ago, um, it's it's wonderful to be able to apply that knowledge to be able to now breed and keep uh, these, uh, you know, non-charismatic species uh, for uh, reintroduction and augmentation efforts, you know, with our partners, uh, state agencies, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, and that's that's where we kind of have really put our focus and, and especially in a local level. That's awesome. I love that. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got to this position. Yeah, um, interesting story. I mean, I was always one of those kids who, you know, wasn't out playing baseball and football with the rest of the kids. I was out flipping rocks and logs, looking for <laughs> bugs and snakes. And, um, of course, you know, like every kid, it started with a love of dinosaurs and fossil collecting and, and just fell in love with the reptile community and the invertebrates. And um, that led to me being a zookeeper. Um, um, which I was very fortunate to be hired here as a zookeeper to to look after their their reptiles and invertebrates uh, here at the zoo. And at the time, our uh, former conservation director, Dr. Lisa Daybeck, kind of took me under her wing. And at the time, as a keeper, I was servicing the American burying beetle colony that we had had at the time and just had seen that, oh, my God, this is a conservation project with an insect, right? I mean, typically you think of gorillas and elephants and pandas right, yeah. and, you know, here's a beetle, right? That's, you know, and, and a carrion beetle, something that utilizes, you know, dead things. And I just thought that was the most amazing cutting edge thing and really enamored in, in conservation. And, and Lisa took me under her wing and gave me the opportunity to uh, travel to Papua New Guinea um, to do biodiversity surveys and really get a look at what, what field conservation was all about. And uh, I just fell in love with it. And, you know, unfortunately, we lost Lisa. Lisa moved on to, to, to a different uh, position. And the position of director of conservation was open, and I had nothing to lose, so I threw my hat in the ring and, uh, and got the job. And, you know, never looked back. So that's awesome. That's so cool. Um, I'm curious. And I, you know, just as a personal person, um, uh, Papua New Guinea, did you see any tree kangaroos while you were there? We did. We uh. did. We handled uh, quite a few, um, took blood samples. Uh, we were doing bio surveys and uh, God, we saw everything, you know, all the birds of paradise, bowerbirds, cassowary, you know, the amazing host of reptiles. 
Um, so yeah, it was, uh, and you know, the indigenous, uh, communities there, you know, just, it's like going back in time. I mean, there's not many places left on the planet like that. Right. Wow. I didn't even think of that. That's so cool. Yeah. I am. I'm, I'm very jealous about the tree kangaroos. They're one of my favorite species and the only one that I haven't been able to, uh, feed or, or pet or anything yet. We're uh. working towards that goal, but, uh, you know, I, I've been pretty lucky doing this and, but yeah, tree kangaroos are just, they're, they're my next dream. So. They're an amazing species. They so really, cool. really are. Okay. But let's turn away from charismatic animals and back to <laughs> what we're talking about here. Um, so you are fascinated by the American, uh, burying beetle. Correct. And, um, I am so curious as to why. And tell me, tell me, first of all, why you love this animal. And then we can talk about the project that you're, you're involved with. Well, uh, as you can see here, it's tattooed on me. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, it so is. I've, uh, <laughs> Dedicated 20 years of my life to it. Um, I'm the uh, species survival plan coordinator for the American Barony Beetle um, for the AZA um, and have been actively working now for over 20 years um, for, uh, on a reintroduction effort for it. Now, it's a species that has disappeared from 90% of its range. Um, it's the largest of the Nicrophorus genus, so the burying beetles. Um, and the only one to have experienced a drastic decline. Um, what's cool about it is it shows some of the highest levels of biparental care in the insect world, uh, next to social insects like bees and ants. So male and female will find a dead carrion item, and they are a specialist, so the carrion item needs to be a certain size. It needs to be between 80 and 180 grams for them to be able to utilize it. Um, they will find this item something about the size of a morning dove, um, has to be fresh dead. It can't be taken over by ants or flies or any of that. Um, and they will cooperate together and bury that item underground. And it usually takes about 24 hours. And these two beetles, it'd be like the equivalent of me and my girlfriend burying an SUV. <laughs> um, so it's quite a feat for them. Uh, they bury it. Once it's buried, they strip all fur or feather off of it, depending if it's a mammal or a bird. Um, it can even be snake, um, anything with a vertebrate. Um, and once it's uh, stripped, they will roll it into a ball and secrete anal and oral secretions on it, which basically embalm it, keep it from being taken over by fungal or bacterial growth, um, which is neat within itself. You can pick up this seven-day-old brood ball, we call it, and give it a sniff, and it smells like something that should be on a hardware store shelf, not a <laughs> wow, dead. Wow, that's crazy. Dead. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, once the carcass is prepared, the female lays her eggs nearby. When the eggs hatch into the first instar larva, they're about as big of a, as a grain of rice. And the female will put them on the carcass and actually keep them all together in a little cavity she chews in that carcass. And those uh, first instar, uh, their mandibles aren't strong enough to feed on their own. So they'll actually stroke the mandibles of the adults to solicit feedings, like a, a bird feeding oh, its, wow. its chicks. Um, which is just fascinating. Um, and it was actually animal behaviorists that noticed the decline of the beetle, not even entomologists, because they wanted to study this unique behavior. Um, so it's cool in the fact that it's got, you know, the gross factor, but yet the, you know, the, so it's really fun to teach kids. It's a great education um, opportunity for kids um, and that you don't have to go to Amazonia or Africa to see these amazing and fascinating creatures that we have them right here in our own backyards. Um, and we believe the reason for their decline, of course, is, you know, them being a specialist. And we know anything in nature that relies on one specific thing, if something goes awry either way, 
it, it usually drives it towards extinction. And in this case, we feel as though uh, loss of habitat, you know, habitat fragmentation, which then cause species composition change, right? So you push your predators out, you get more scavengers. And then in the case of this beetle, things like passenger pigeons, Carolina parakeets, here in the east, we had the heath hen. These are all birds that would have had, you know, heavy breeding events with high mortality rates um, and the right size for the beetle. So now those animals are extinct. So now you have less resource available for the beetle and more competition for that resource. And then you throw in modern day stressors like pesticides and, you know, even those bug zappers people used to buy and put in their yards that only killed beneficial things and, <laughs> and nothing they were targeted to, uh, to uh, kill. And, and even nighttime lighting, you know, leaving your porch light on at night, a lot of people, you know, don't realize how that affects, uh, you know, photokinetic invertebrates like moths and beetles right, and right. things that are pollinators and, and like the beetle, a high-end recycler. You know, that's its role in the ecosystem is, is as a recycler. And, you know, that's why I love working with species like that because without them, we'd be knee-deep in dead and decaying things, right? And... uh so, yeah, that, you know, that, that kind of uh, is what lured me to the Barium Beetle. And then the fact that it was actually probably the longest-running invertebrate conservation initiative in North America, if not the world, um, was pretty appealing to me. Wow. Okay. So um, we'll get to that uh, in one second. But I did have one question. How large are adult uh, burying beetles? They're about 35 millimeters long. So, okay. So they're pretty good size. Yeah, um, that's solid. Yeah, they're, they're, they're big by North American bug standard. You know, yeah, very cool. All right, so you definitely caught my attention when you said it's the the longest running uh, conservation it, program. It currently is now for invertebrates. Oh, okay, okay. For, for I insects. was I was confused. Okay, that for makes insects. sense. So, tell me about this program, um, like Broadscope. Okay, Broadscope. We have only one known population left in the eastern part of its range. So it used to range from the east coast out thirty five states, just uh, east of the Rocky Mountains. So right out to, say, the Dakotas, Oklahoma, Nebraska. Sure. So they disappeared from everywhere. The only place you can find them in the eastern portion of its range now is off on a little island off our coast here, Block Island. That's the only place they're found. And then there's six populations out in the Midwest in uh, South Dakota, Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Arkansas. Um, so we here with our only one... You know, all our eggs are in one basket on this island out there. And, you know, we wanted to make sure that, you know, in case something stochastic happened, you know, it could be a year of bad storms, you know, being a burying beetle, they're very prone to flooding. Uh, you know, now with climate change, you know, they're prone to high temperatures and again, more, you know, stronger storms that we're, we're seeing. Um, so they are very vulnerable in that case and they only live a year. So they can't take too many hits of, of having a non-reproductive season right. before we lose them. So the goal was uh, Fish and, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, because they are a federally endangered uh, insect. They're listed um, by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife as endangered. Um, so the plan was for us to uh, take beetles from Block Island, founder animals, bring them here to the zoo, breed as many as we could, and then we chose Nantucket Island, which is uh, off the coast of Massachusetts, which is very similar in habitat type. It was historically a home to the Barium Beetle. One hadn't been seen out there since 1926. Um, but we felt that it, it uh, fit all the criteria to be a, a release site. 
Um, so since 1994, we've been breeding American burying beetles and putting them onto Nantucket. And I go out there every summer and pitfall trap and, and monitor for abundance and distribution across the island. Cool. So um, how's it going? We have established a population uh, out there. We, we definitely um, are maintaining a population on the island. Every year we go out there, we catch them. Um, we're finding, though, that we do have to somewhat hold their hand and, you know, provision them um, with, with uh, carrion um, to help keep our numbers up. Um, so the question is, you know, is there enough suitable carrion naturally available to them on the island during their breeding season? So we're, we're assessing that now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think we can say that uh, yeah, uh, we're on the path to success there. So. That's really awesome. And... Um what are the what are like the future goals for this this project? Self-sustaining population, one we can walk away from and say they're there, you know. And and you know, as you know, you've talked to a lot of zoo professionals. Not every reintroduction effort works. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're trying to put back in a snapshot what took millions of years to create, and uh, so they don't often work. But but this one is showing some serious promise. And then we have our colleagues out west. We have the Cincinnati Zoo, we have the Wilds, and we have St. Louis Zoo breeding the beetle uh, for reintroduction efforts out west as well. Awesome. Those are actually three of my favorite places. Fantastic. And I'll be at uh, Cincy and the Wilds later this week. So, Great. Uh, yeah, I'll have to check into that a little bit. That's really cool. Um, so if Nantucket becomes uh, self-sustaining, would you guys try to start another... We are. We're uh, uh, working with some folks in uh, upstate New York, and there's plans to uh, release up in the Albany Pine Bush um, uh, down the road. You know, yeah, Un unfortunately, cool. the pandemic has you know put the brakes on a lot of things. You know, hopefully temporarily. Um, but yes, there is plan for a mainland reintroduction in the eastern portion of its range. So tell me, since you're uh, so proud of this uh, beetle project, um, what stands out as like your favorite moment from it? Oh, that has to be uh, when I get a phone call from actually uh, Dr. Jane Goodall's <laughs> Wait, folks. the Jane Goodall? The Jane Goodall. Tell me all about this. Um, she had heard about the Barium Beetle, absolutely loved the, not only the species, but the story behind it. Um, and actually wanted to write a chapter in her book, A Hope for Animals in Their World, Bringing Endangered Species Back from the Brink, about me and the, and the burying beetle <laughs> project. So, I mean, if you had asked me 25, told me 25 years ago, someday Jane Goodall is going to write a chapter about you, I would have laughed at you. Um, but she truly did. And, you know, I got to meet Jane and we still contact each other to this day. I get handwritten letters from her, oh, postcards, um, and and a chapter in her book. And, and I even got to actually sign Jane Goodall's book, <laughs> which is which was really cool. <laughs> so I think that's a moment not only for you know burying beetles, but for for my career that I don't think I'd ever be able to top. It was quite an honor to be recognized by what I feel is you know one of the world's greatest conservationists and, and, and uh, you know, soldiers for conservation. Yeah, I have goosebumps right now. That's amazing. Very cool. Why don't we, before we move on to the next uh, project, why don't you take a minute and tell me how the pandemic has been affecting conservation efforts? Well, it's it certainly has affected it in many ways. Um, you know, of course, zoos right now, with, you know, being closed and, you know, and when we have reopened to limited visitation you know, people are still a little 
you know, worried about going out. So our vegetation isn't where it should be. Um, so yeah, financially we're struggling and, you know, unfortunately a lot of budgets, uh, have been either reduced or, or cut. Um, you know, we got to keep our doors open and the animals fed. Um, so I think you're seeing less monies going into the field. Um, and that's both, you know, regionally, nationally, and internationally. Um, and then of course travel, you know, we can't get out to field sites, um, you know, and, and again, even locally this year, it was I couldn't even get over to Nantucket this year. You know, we, our housing where we usually stay was shut down. And, right. you know, so we're, we're just seeing these trickle-down effects um, in, in many, many ways, unfortunately. That is a shame. Is there anything that uh, people listening to this can do to help with that situation? Support your local zoo, you know. Visit them. Make a donation. Um, you know, zoos are, are vital to the conservation of species worldwide. And and again, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, they think we're just a fun place to come spend with the family. And, um, but we are one of the largest conservation machines out there. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I really didn't realize that now until I'm seeing the effects of now that, you know, the brakes have been put on us and, right. and hearing the stories from people in the field and what's going on, we're seeing increased poaching, you know, cause we don't have the Rangers out there like we used to. And, you know, again, I missed a whole burying beetle season this year, a whole year of data. So we're losing data. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I could list list many ways. So I think it's important to support your local zoo and um, an air market for conservation. And, you know, we, we certainly would love to uh, you know, put that money to work to keep these species uh, on the planet. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Uh, so another species that you guys are trying to conserve is the timber rattlesnake. Correct. And I know that a whole bunch of my listeners, even though we're all animal people here, just went, ew, why? So let me ask you. I'm going to drop the ew because I actually love snakes, but why? Well, because, you know, I, I like to look at the ecosystem like a bicycle wheel, right? You, you get this brand new bicycle wheel out of the box and it spins so true with all the spokes nice and tight, right? So every one of those spokes represents some part of the ecosystem. Yeah, you may be able to take one or two spokes out of that wheel and still be able to ride the bike. Take a few too many out, it's going to start to wobble. Take one or two more many out, and it's going to collapse. So I think of, uh, you know, that timber rattlesnake is one of those spokes in the wheel and, uh, and a vital part of the ecosystem. Snakes in general, not just, you know, specifically rattlesnakes or the timber rattlesnake. I mean, snakes are, are vital in rodent control and, you know, uh, keeping populations uh, in check um you know uh, the timber rattlesnake and a lot of other you know rodent eating snakes their meal is the paramiscus mouse which is the first uh stage of the lime carrying tick so you know if we did not have species like snakes or timber rattlesnakes out there we would be overrun with rodents that could potentially spread not only lyme disease but but other diseases as well um so they're very important um, and, and iconic as well. You know, Benjamin Franklin uh, proposed the timber rattlesnake to be the national uh, animal, not the, not the bald eagle. So, you know, the don't tread on me flag. So it's, it's held cultural significance throughout history. And uh, it would be a shame to see it go. And, you know, so, yeah, I'm determined to make sure it doesn't. That's awesome. I did not know that about Ben Franklin. That's really interesting. Very cool. So uh, introduce my listeners briefly to, to timber rattlesnakes. Tell me a little bit about them, please. Well, you know, that was a sad story, um, really, um, 
because we, you know, we were working with you know, some of the New England states here um, to uh, look at some of the populations that were really in trouble, where we're seeing less than, you know, 10 or 15 snakes left where there used to be hundreds in these dense sites. You know, they've been very fragmented into these small populations. Um, and what started it was this issue with the snake fungal disease that came up uh, a few years back. You know, we heard of white nose syndrome in bats, fungal disease, the chytrid fungus in amphibians. Well, now there is this snake fungal disease that literally is rotting the faces uh, off of these animals. Um, so we started to see it here uh, in the timber rattlesnakes in the Northeast. So we partnered with our vet department here, um, the state agencies uh, in most of the New England states, states that still have timbers. Um, and we did a two-year study to look at the prevalence of the disease amongst New England populations, which then led us into actually head-starting young animals, you know, growing them up from neonates to, you know, six, 700 grams, get them beyond predation size, give them a little bit better chance of survival. We put radios in them and track them. Um, and then the plan was to create a population on an island in the Quabbin Reservoir in Massachusetts. And we, it was an amazing plan, right? The, the island is off limits to people. It's 3,000 acre island. That's perfect habitat right within the historic range of the animal. Um, we thought we had a great plan there until, unfortunately, the public got wind of it. And, uh, boy, it was like a witch hunt, unfortunately. And, um, you know, people were up in arms that were, you know, putting their pets and children in danger and... Oh, my God. And, you know, we had to host a bunch of town hall meetings to try to, you know, sell the idea where we shouldn't have to. You know, I don't think we can selectively conserve species. Right. You know, we if that was the case, we'd have nothing but habitats full of bunny rabbits and butterflies. Right. So, you know, the bears matter. You know, the things that can hurt you matter. But, you know, so unfortunately, um, it was stopped um, at, at a governmental level. Um, so it kind of put the brakes on that plan um, and actually stopped a lot of the on-the-ground conservation for that species for quite some time. And uh, But we're still doing population monitoring, a little bit of head starting, um, and someday we'd like to revisit that plan to start creating new populations of this animal. But, you know, it's it's a tough sell. You know, it's a tough sell. And I get it. I mean, I get people's fears and, you know, but, you know, there hasn't been a person, you know, that has died of a venomous snake bite in Massachusetts since the 1800s. You know, some of the most robust populations that we have now in New England are in some of the most heavily recreated areas in these states. Um, we're not seeing people getting bitten, you know. So, you know, I, I think it was irrational fear and, and lack of education that is uh, actually hampered the conservation of a very uh, threatened and endangered species in our region. That's absolutely heartbreaking. I'm sure I was making all kinds of stupid faces because I'm just that is that's so depressing. Um It was. Is yeah. there is there anything doable on the education front? Well, I, you know, I, I think you know, with anything, I, I think we gotta go after our kids, right? I, I mean it's the kids, it's it's our next generation um of of animal lovers and conservationists and, and zookeepers and and conservation educators. Um, they're the ones we need to target and try to change that perception of, of snakes and, and non-charismatic species. And, 
And again, all species matter, and, and we should not ever pick and choose what species we decide to conserve. You know, if it's endangered, and whether it's, you know, state endangered or federally endangered, we have a mandate to come up with a recovery plan and make sure that we do not lose that species. And just because it's a rattlesnake and not a bunny rabbit um, shouldn't make a difference. And, and it does. And, you know, I don't know what we could have done better, um, but I, I think it's just going to be a work in progress. You know, I hope you're able to get that up and running again. It sounds like an amazing um Sounds like an amazing. Program. It was one I was very proud of, and the zoo was very proud of, and I think all the partners were very proud of. Um, and and we were making headway and and, and good strides, and it would have been a model uh, for for the conservation of you know not only other snakes but you know lesser charismatic or dangerous things uh, that we deem dangerous. I mean, I've handled thousands of timber rattlesnakes. I've right. never been bitten or even close to being bitten. They're not these evil uh, serpents that everybody uh, has you know, put out to be. So, um, again, I think it's all an education and, and maybe, you know, just bringing people to the table as stakeholders and, and just letting them know how important, you know, these animals are to not only our, our, you know, the history and cultural aspect of them, but, but to the ecosystem as well. Makes sense. Um, I'm curious when you do something like that, and I realize this plan didn't, you know, come to fruition yet. I'm, I'm going to say yet because I believe it'll happen. We're hoping. Um, but are you do you pay attention to things like predator prey ratios when you're deciding how many to release and stuff? Or Absolutely, you, yeah, okay. yeah. It was, all the small mammal surveys are done, right? You know, like the island that we 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 had looked at all that. Um, you know, is there a suitable hibernacular there? You know, we looked for other species of snakes that successfully overwinter there. Um, yes, yes, all that in in every species. Whenever a recovery plan is written, um, you know, habitat, all that is is taken into consideration. Uh, even land use, um, who owns the land, how stable, you know, we look at all those aspects before we actually determine if a site is suitable for reintroduction. That's awesome. It's great to know um, that everything's being considered. It's not just like, hey, let's throw no, some snakes on an island and no, see what happens. No, absolutely not. That's, that's absolutely great. Not. Um, okay, cool. So I guess I had one other question about this program, which is the Head Start part. Um, how do you head start a snake and how do you make it then not, um, complacent and just expecting humans to give it stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean, snakes are creatures of instinctual creatures, right? Um, just like if someone took a snake out of the wild, brought it in as a pet, um, they adapt, they'll eat and, and they go the other way as well. As long as there's prey avail availability there, if they smell food, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna take it. So, okay. And yeah, we, we've have not seen any problem, even with some of the animals that when we were doing the disease study that came in really sick, we actually hospitalized them here. And in some cases kept them for weeks, um, until they were well enough to be re-released. And, and we did, we did question are these snakes going to, you know, be okay. Are they going to re-imprint back into their den sites? And, and, and we had and seen no problems whatsoever. Excellent. How, um, is there any way to work on this disease in the wild? Um, if you can bring bring species into the hospital and heal them, is there any way to do a a mass vaccination? Or I'm getting way out of my my realm. Yeah, here, but no, you know what I'm talking uh, about. Just just like with the amphibians and the you know, it's a fungal disease. So mm -hmm. yeah, there is really nothing um, we can do except try to figure out what the cause is. Um, and you know, we're we still don't really know what the true cause of it is. Is it, you know, we're seeing it in the 
timbers in the Northeast, and they saw it in the Mesosauga, which is a, a federally endangered rattlesnake species in the Midwest. And these are populations of animals that have been very isolated, very little genetic swapping. So, so one of the theories is that we have these now very uh, bottlenecked populations, which, you know, when you start to see genetic bottlenecking, one of the, uh, I guess, symptoms of that is uh, immune suppression, uh, immune system suppression. So we're thinking this might have been an organism that's been out there for hundreds of years that they used to be able to fight off. But now it's 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 affecting some of these more um, genetically bottlenecked populations. Makes uh, sense, and it, and also it could be climate climate driven as well. Makes sense. As a uh, uh, SSP coordinator, that's why genetic diversity matters so much, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Cool. Um, great. So then, the third uh, species that we were going to talk about is the New England cottontail rabbit. And congratulations, we've we've reached an animal that people might actually want to conserve. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have to convince anyone. But uh, tell me a little bit about the uh, cottontails and why why we need to save them. Yes, uh, the New England cottontail is our only native cottontail rabbit to the New England region, from Maine uh, to New York, right through to uh, Connecticut, out to New York. Um, it is a specialist in habitat type, so it, it needs early successional habitat to, to be able to survive. It lives in that type of habitat that your dog wouldn't even want to run through, you know, the bull briar, real, real tight stuff. Um, and that habitat is, is becoming endangered in itself, you know, with, with farming leaving New England a hundred years ago, a lot of these fields that would go successful and then, you know, be plowed again and kept these habitat types available to these species are now reverting back to forest. And it's not only affecting New England cottontail, but it's affecting other species like woodcock, eastern box turtles, you know, black racer snakes, um, and a whole host of other species that rely on these habitat types. So uh, with the loss of the rabbit being seen about 75 years ago by hunters, you know, they weren't seeing cottontails anymore. Um, they decided to move the non-native eastern cottontail into the region, which looks very similar to the New England, but in, in its habits, it's, it's a much more aggressive rabbit as far as where it lives. It doesn't care. It'll live in a suburban backyard. It'll live in an industrial park. Um, it doesn't care. And it outcompetes the New England cottontail, not only for resource, but for habit, for habitat space. Um, so between the loss of habitat and now the introduction of this non-native, um, it pushed the cottontail population, the native cottontail populations to, um, you know, almost endangered status. It was actually uh, um, considered to be federally listed six years ago. And, and because of all of our work and our, our partners, um, it, it didn't get listed, which is, you know, one thing we're proud of. As that's well. awesome. Yeah, that's great. So our role in the, in the conservation of that species is to captive breed them here, um, to create new populations and to augment already existing populations within its range. And we've been doing that now since 2010. And we've created uh, two island populations, uh, which are now robust enough that we can actually take animals off the islands and put them into mainland sites. Um, so we've been releasing in Maine, New Hampshire, um, here in our Bay Islands, uh, in Rhode Island, and then a couple of mainland sites here in Rhode Island as well. And, and we have successfully established populations with this species. And, you know, since 2010, 10 years, that's a very short amount of time for a, 
for a, you know, a reintroduction effort. So proud of that. That's fabulous. Yeah, that's uh, congratulations on that success. I'm curious, I'm noticing a trend between all three of these projects, which is you keep talking about islands. Islands is a big deal. Um, do you find that that's a, a kind of standard move to try to help populations grow on islands since they're isolated and then go from there? Well, yeah, I mean, fortunately, we have the ability to use islands because of our geographic sure, sure. region. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I I mean islands make for good laboratories too. Like like for the beetle, we we've tested a lot of methodologies over there. They can't really go far on us and and a lot of the methodologies that we've tried and trued on on the islands uh, are now being utilized and used in the other parts of of the species range too. So we're proud of that. Um but yeah, islands are kind of a a refuge and a and a safe haven for a lot of these species. Um less um you know, uh traffic and, and, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, disturbance yeah, makes sense. On, on, on those, on those types of types of places. And, and a lot of our islands here are in conservation easement too. So it makes it easy for us. They can't be developed, you know, they can't be, you know, sold out from underneath us. Um, so that they actually work good for us. Um, not only as safe havens for these species, but again, uh, areas to be able to test methodologies and, and release options and, so yeah, it worked for us. Yeah, that's really cool. Very cool. Anything else that you wanted to say about these or any other conservation uh, efforts you guys are undertaking? Well, we 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 are doing a lot with uh, uh, native turtles here. Um, you know, we've been doing working with uh, our state agencies and U.S. Fish and Wildlife to monitor populations of eastern box turtles, uh, wood turtles, spotted turtles, diamondback terrapins. Um, you literally just named four of my favorite animals like, in the world, back to back to back to back. That was really impressive. <laughs> and sadly, uh, you know, these these animals now we're seeing are being poached at an alarming rate. Um, and, you know, for the pet trade, uh, food, um, and a lot of them are going overseas. They're being poached and sold, you know, to the European and Asian markets. Um, and we're seeing confiscations in the hundreds and if not thousands of animals. Um it's frightening. Um, so uh, I just recently uh, took on the species survival program for the wood turtle. I coordinate the, the uh, North American wood turtle SSP. And then working with our other zoo partners, uh, we created a new program um, uh, under the guise of AZA, which is AZA SAFE program, which is the acronym for saving animals from extinction. So we just started a program with many zoo partners um, all the SSPs that deal with those species of turtles, um, where we're going to actually, our motto is from confiscation to conservation. So we're trying to not only, you know, mitigate, trying to, you know, curb the poaching of these animals, but in the cases when we do confiscate um, these, these, uh, these animals, um, what do we do with them? You know, trying to build capacity to hold them and then either, you know, get them released um, back into the wild or into situations where we can breed those animals with those offspring having a conservation value uh, down the road. So uh, I'm excited about that program. And, you know, uh, we got a lot of wonderful and great minded folks uh, at the table um, from U.S. Fish and Wildlife right through the, to the zoos, state agencies. Uh, we got veterinary support for disease screenings. Um, we've got genetic support to, to look at the, you know, to genome these animals to see if we can't pinpoint them to states or populations where they might have originated from. Um, so I'm very hopeful that this is going to really help keep those 
very charismatic species on on the planet for us for quite some time. So very cool. That's awesome. I am I'm so excited to hear that turtle conservation uh, is what brought me to understand that conservation is a thing. Awesome. And yeah, and I just that's really cool. Well, everybody thinks of the sea turtles, right? And we've been working with yeah. sea turtles for years and years and years. You know, globally. Um, but now our, our, our North American freshwater stuff is really um, in danger. Um, so, um, yeah, it's good to be on the ground floor of it, and uh, hopefully we can mitigate that. Very cool. Actually, while uh, while I've got you here for a second, um, let's talk about North American wood turtles. So you're the SSP coordinator. Correct. And wood turtles are really smart and really charismatic turtles. Absolutely. And um, I wish more people knew that because they are just, they're just the coolest things. Um, but – Tell me what it what you do as an SSP coordinator, and specifically, I've already done an interview getting into like the nitty gritty of stud bookkeeping and all of mm-hmm. that. But what I'm curious about is how it's different for herps and especially you know the turtles. Um, I'm glad you didn't ask me about burying beetles because burying beetle is an SSP as well. So you know, and we actually do kind of stud book those. Really, but. They only live a year, right? you know, yeah, which yeah. makes some of these ectotherms a little bit more challenging to manage because they don't live very long like, a, say, a cheetah or a snow leopard where you can manage these populations over a long period of time. Things like turtles and reptiles are a little more longer lived, so we can actually manage them similar to mammals. Um, but the goal is, uh, for me, at least for the wood turtle, is to make sure... If we're going to breed them and keep them, I, I would like to, I don't want to just breed wood turtles just to have wood turtles. I want to, you know, look at what we already have amongst the AZA, try to pinpoint, you know, animals that come from, say, Pennsylvania, come from New Jersey, put those in zoos in clades. So I want a zoo breeding nothing but Pennsylvania animals or nothing but New Jersey animals. So when we do get these confiscated animals and we can pinpoint them to either state or population, we can add those to those groups, and then when we do reproduce these animals, it gives us a better chance of making those offspring having a conservation value where they can be released and augment populations um, for the better uh, for the conservation of the wild species. You know, oftentimes we just breed through SSPs to make sure that we have animals for exhibits. Right. Um, with this one, I really want to make sure that not only do we have the animals for exhibits because those are important because they're kind of the stewards of their wild counterparts. You know, they, they're the ones that inspire the kids. Um, but we also want to make sure that we're, we're um, you know, breeding for, for conservation value. All right. Very cool. I like to end every interview with what I call a poop story. Uh, it doesn't have to be poop, but just something gross that has happened to you, maybe all the way back when you were a keeper. Um, but that, like, shows your love for animals. You know, you put up with this and you were okay with it. And, you know, this has quickly become the most popular part of my podcast. So um, if you have any kind of story that you could share like that, that's that would be great. Oh, gee, how much time do you have? <laughs> We can talk about, let's see, uh, you know, I mean, I've had malaria twice. I've, oh, no. I've had subcutaneous parasites living under my skin. <laughs> I've had every tick-borne illness that you could catch multiple times. I've had leeches in my eyes. Um, yeah, you know, I, you know, when we bait burying beetles, we bait them with very rotted chicken. You know, I've had that juice splashed in my face. I don't know how many times, you know, <laughs> realize I'm eating a bagel and not had washed my hands. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, so I could go on and on and on. But 
And yeah, um, you know, lived in some harsh conditions, uh, been in some dangerous situations, uh, especially abroad. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think we all as conservationists endure all that stuff and, and kind of laugh about it and embrace it um, because we love what we do and it's part of what we do. And, and if we were afraid of it, I don't think any of us would be doing it. And right. um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, I, yeah, you know, I, I'm sure I could go into more detail, but oh, that, holy that, cow. that covered it. Not please. to mention the bot flies. I've had a few bot fly larvae over the years that, you know, but uh, yeah. Yeah, and we do a lot of work with amphibians as well, too. So um, I've, I've worked in Panama uh, with the uh, Ovae Amphibian Conservation Center down there, um, you know, consulting them on how to rear local invertebrates to feed frogs. Um, that's been amazing. Um, good times. Uh, working now with San Antonio Zoo, we're setting up uh, uh, actually amph- amph- amphibian breeding labs for endangered Chilean amphibians in Chile. Nice. Um, so we're doing a lot with with uh, amphibians as well. Um, forgot to mention that yeah. piece of it. But. No, that's really cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. How cool was that? I hope y'all were as impressed with Lou as I was during the interview. Sometimes the hardest part of being a podcaster is not just sitting there saying wow over and over again. Though I admit I do tend to say that a whole lot and a whole lot of that's awesome, that's so cool and other stuff like that. To be fair though, so much of this stuff is so cool and so awesome. But I digress. As I mentioned in the intro, I wanted to get this episode out this week because of something that just recently occurred that pertains to the episode. The Trump administration just downlisted the American burying beetle from endangered to threatened. On the surface, this seems like an incredibly positive development. I admit that when I first saw articles about this, I got really excited, literally saying, nice work, Lou, to my phone. Turns out there is more to the story, though, and it's not great news after all. Oil and gas companies in the western part of the U.S. have been fighting against the protections provided to American burying beetles under the Endangered Species Act for years. This deregulation effort is coming too soon and will have a negative impact on the beetles while giving oil and gas companies more land to abuse. The Independent Petroleum Association of America, in particular, has been waging war against the American burying beetle, sending petitions and lobbyists, and even suing the Fish and Wildlife Service for years. Speaking to the Cape Cod Times, Lou stated his belief that the status change is not only going to hurt wild populations of American burying beetles, but also is one step in a larger plan to hollow out the Endangered Species Act by starting with uncharismatic insects and then moving on to larger animals. We really haven't achieved the recovery goals, Lou stated, while lamenting the fact that he can't accept this change in status as a success. I generally like to believe this podcast exists outside the world of politics, and I promise you I'm not going to get political or preach to you on here normally. But please, keep this episode and the story of the American burying beetle in your mind as you vote this November. Please remember the amazing work being done by Lou, and conservationists like him all around the country, and the fact that it can all be stripped away to increase the profits of a few companies with deep pockets.
Please make your vote not only about yourself, but about the animals and people that need our help the most right now. Vote as though climate change is real. It is. Conservation matters. It does. And our voiceless animal friends need you. Because they do. Please, vote. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.